70 something percent of buyers are frustrated with the seller process. And we know that human centric selling and focusing on the buyer themselves, their problems, the impact of the problem across their business. If we know that those are the better routes and those yield the best outcomes, then it would seem there comes a point when those doing it the other way can't succeed in the market. But I don't know if that's what's happening. I think over time, what we do see as buyers become frustrated, more people start to figure out what is the alternative to this. Hi, friends. Welcome to the WinRate Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Dewan Brown. And Dewan is one of my guests on this episode of the WinRate Podcast. Dewan Brown is the head of sales at Merit American. And my other guests today for this Discussion about sales effectiveness and increasing win rates are Sean Shepard. Sean is managing partner at U Plus. And Sherry Leviton is the CEO of the Sherry Leviton Group and author of a really excellent book titled Heart and Sell, 10 Universal Truths Every Salesperson Needs to Know. Now, before we jump into today's discussion, I just want to let you know that if you have any questions about B2B selling, sales effectiveness, or how to increase your win rates that you'd like to have addressed by either me or one of my guests on this podcast, then you can submit those questions to us via email at winratepodcast at gmail.com, or you can DM them to me, Andy Paul, on LinkedIn. So I'd love to hear your questions. If you're ready, let's jump into the discussion. Welcome, everyone. And I want to welcome Sherry Leviton, Sean Shepard, Dewan Brown, the show. So if you could, let's we'll still go in order. And if you guys just spend a minute uh, giving a brief introduction to yourself, Sherry, we'll start with you. Whenever anybody asks that, I'm thinking I, I need to have like the elevator speech that clicks, right? So, but companies hire me who really, I do three th- different things. Our company uh, does just three different things. Number one, I'm a keynote speaker. So I do a lot of sales kickoffs. Mm-hmm. Our biggest topic right now is how to rehumanize the sales process in the wake of chat GPT and Alexa. So we need to do everything Alexa can't do in order to connect with our customers. We also have a training and consulting division. Uh, we jokingly call our keynotes a one-night stand. We prefer to work deeper with clients and make an impact. So we help them uh, scale their systems, increase their revenue by working with each level of leadership within the organization. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing we do is we have train the trainer programs where we train enablement professionals and leaders and we certify them in our methodology called the four pillars of an effective training and coaching program. And other than that, live in Park City, love to ski, hike, stand yep. on my head, do fun things. Right. If I'd known that, we would have had you share the staying on your head bit. So, Sean, how about you? Yeah, Sean Shepard, real tech entrepreneur, sales founder, three exits, three venture funds, the world's first partner accelerator called GrowthX, and then this first school to train people in sales roles to work in Silicon Valley tech companies. Company Academy, always been passionate about sales and upskilling and, and professionalizing the industry. Nobody grows up saying I want to be in sales and hopefully doctors, lawyers, or accountants. Yet without sales and professional sales people, it never happens in commerce. I think it's tremendous and value. And so I always enjoy this. And Dewan. Dewan Brown. I am just a serial seller for the last 22 years. Sales leadership, zero exits, zero funds, zero headstands, but one wife and six kids. I'm currently the head of sales for a national nonprofit called Merit America, where our 
primary mission is to change who gets access to economic opportunity in the U.S. and how. So tell us how you got into that, because you, what, you started your career with like Intuit and then you're That's at right. Bloomberg and you work for all these big companies. That's right. So who had already exited, by the way, but very impressive you're working for them. So what, what sort of got you down this path? Yeah, I think the mission itself is one that I've been running towards since I got into sales. So I was dragged into sales after having my first son, not having to, but leaving college to raise him, um, trying to figure out what does a family sustaining wage look like when I don't have a degree and got dragged in over the course of a year, applied it into it, got into it, stayed there 12 and a half years. And since then, like seeing the trajectory change for my family and myself, I've been trying to figure out ways to do that for others. I can't scale it because I always had to do it outside of my nine to five. Mm-hmm. And so when I came across Merit, it's just like, I consider it my icky guy, right? It's like what right. the world needs, what I'm passionate about, what I can get paid for. It's super mission to do the same. So I am actually the profile of our learners and our alumni at Merit who transitioned from, in some cases, in a lot of cases, low wage work into tech through alternative methods and means. And so we're one of those methods and means. And so I'm just extremely passionate about it because I've always been, since I've uh, benefited from someone seeing something deeper in me, understanding aptitude and attitude have trumped a lot of things that were required in the roles I wanted. And now I get to pursue that at scale full time. Our mission is a billion dollars in wage change by 2025 and to begin serving over 10,000 learners a year. Very impressive. And that's based where? We're all remote. Yeah. Our founders met them, met each other years ago at Coursera, and we have a large swath of our, our population in terms of employees in D.C., but we're all over the place, all over the country. Got it. Very exciting. That's quite yeah. a pivot. I love that. Yeah, I appreciate it's like it. To be, I mean, it's, it's a question, because I've, I've never really, I may have been passionate about what I do. I've really enjoyed what the work I've done, but... Mm-hmm. You know, quite honestly, I never felt like it was, I was saving the world or fundamentally changed the world doing it. Yeah. How's it feel different? Like when you wake up every morning? Oh, it, it feels like there's this angst, right? So sometimes you're in a full-time role and you like it to your description, you enjoy it. It's good work. But most of us, when we reach, and I talk about it in the term, this is me and Jack Wilson have probably spent a hundred hours talking about this, but when you think about Maslow's hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Like you get to a place of self-actualization. That's not like, boom, I'm done. Right. But if you turn that pyramid on its side, like it's almost like a bullhorn and you start to transition to really try to reach others. And the only thing that keeps you from reaching more is typically time and resources. Right. Right. But you're trying all along. And so if you can align what you're trying to do on the side and who you're trying to reach and who you're trying to impact to help them go through their hierarchy then you take it if resources and time weren't restrictive. Mm -hmm. And so moving into a role like this, resources and time aren't restrictive because that is my job. And so you might imagine what that feels like every morning waking up doing that thing. And that's how I feel. Love it. Love it. All right. Well, all right. We're going to jump into our, (laughs) my regular topic, but I love what you're doing. Congratulations on that. All right, Sean, we're going to start with you. Is actually, we're going to change up a little bit. Head Sean first. Sharing a tee up you a little bit first, actually. I did have, without knowing you're going to make your comment about uh, what you're talking about in terms of how you humanize the selling processes. So let's start there. What is the impact you think AI is going to have on this ability to 
for sellers to create these differentiated sort of human-based buying experiences. Are you asking Sean or are you asking me? I'm not asking you, Sherry. Did oh, I say okay. Sean? I meant Sherry. I'm sorry. Oh, if okay. I said Sean, no, Sherry. No, no problem. I, I think for a long time, if you look at the landscape, certainly generationally, Sherry Turkle tells us that as technology use has increased, empathy, the number one skill sellers need, has decreased by over 40%. And mm. what I see with the clients we work with, and we're working with Microsoft and Dell, and then we're also working with people in home improvement, so sort of across the spectrum. And whether they're selling tech or they're selling kitchens or real estate, one of the things that we still see, and it's hard to believe, is sellers leading with products instead of building relationships. You've got sellers blurting out what their products do and instead of really trying to understand the needs of the customer. I think ChatGPT is really exciting to me and AI is really exciting to me. We do have to understand it's not going to replace what has always been. And that is, if you look at sort of the, I love to do this in my seminars. I say, we all learned in sales 101 that there's two things you need in order to make a sale. Dewan, you'll love this. It's you need your competency. You need to know your products and you need your empathy. You need to know your customer. And then I'll say, if you only had one and you had to decide competency or empathy, which would you decide? You only get one. And the rooms usually split, right? And the thing is, it's a trick question because what Harvard Business Review tells us, and there's a great article called First Connect, Then Lead, is that empathy and competency are the two most important traits that you need in order to sell. But the order matters. And empathy gets you in the door. It's competency, reliability, and integrity that keep you there. That I call that the four elements of trust. And so sellers continue to lead with competency. AI gives us competency in spades. We can look up anything. We can find out anything in seconds now. It's amazing. But it never replaces that empathy. Now, with that said, there's many places that I've been playing with ChatGPT, whether it's doing research, whether it's helping with proposals. But I think it's not going to really replace that connection in a complex B2B sale, that connection in a complex B2B sale. Yeah. So, I mean, that that aspect of, and certainly this is reinforced by, most recently by Gartner. They put out this, published some of the charts from other latest studies, and they said, hey, here are the nine most important factors that influence a buyer's decision. And, yeah, six or seven of the nine specifically were this experiential thing, right? How the buyer experiences working with the seller. But this is a, a lesson that still seems to elude companies, sellers, if you will. And I thought it was really, Gardner did a great job sort of drawing the contrast to because as you said, Sherry, is what Gardner is saying is, look, everybody's selling a product. The buyer is choosing a vendor, right? <laughs> One is just, yeah, as your point, demonstrate competence, but the buyer wants that, that experience. They want that empathy. They need that connection. And, and then you need a seller to build consensus, which Gartner talks about all the time, right? That's the biggest challenge. How do you get 11 stakeholders to agree on anything. So you've got to have that understanding. You've got to have the strategic thinking. You've got to be able to play psychologist. And I just find in enablement, they're they're just not teaching that. They're teaching all of these product lines that you have to learn. And I always say what happens in the training process is duplicated in the sales process. Then we just give them too much information. Yeah. Sean, what's your take on that? Well, I 100% agree. In the age of AI, AI is more important than it's ever been. And in, I've always chosen technology as a field to apply my craft because I love the leverage that technology creates. Right? 
while I was talking about, I'm one person, I can only do so much. So how do you turn that pyramid on its side, create a blowboard? Well, you can leverage things like capital, you can leverage people, you can leverage technology. And so I've always loved what technology can be to scale for good. Technology for good to me means it advances human performance. It doesn't replace human performance in its entirety, but it does advance it, right? So for example, we just launched at U Plus, my company, build startups for big, big corporations. We launched a venture discovery AI platform that takes this three-month professional service that we used to sell for three hundred grand, come up with five business model ideas that we test in the market, mm-hmm. and it does it in an hour, right? So cannibalizing our business? No, I don't believe so. But what we are doing is we're just accelerating the path to the outcomes that the customer wants and leveraging these tools. It right. still means you need humans. It's still a managed service. It is not, and I don't think it'll ever be a quote-unquote SaaS product that's completely self-service. Not until right. people have the context and the experience and the right set of behavior and mindset to apply it correctly. But what it does do is it accelerates it. Because otherwise, a fool is, with a tool is still a fool. And so I agree with the entire, let's say, current premise that we've always under- underemphasized the humanity of the work that we do and everything that's centered in around that humanity. And I 100% agree with Sherry that empathy gets you in the door, competency teach you in the door. You've got to build and create those relationships. You have to be a critical thinker, a problem solver. You've got to have strong business and market acting. You've got to be able to communicate well and you've got to have strong emotional intelligence. And if you don't have those things, and again, why do they call them soft skills? One of the hardest to master. That's what they're called. Right. It's ridiculous. But those are the skills that I think the best professional sellers need to focus on and develop themselves around. And you don't get that necessarily from sales-specific industry content, right? You get that from out the outside world, human behaviorists, anthropology, researchers, humanities, social sciences, places that aren't necessarily right down the swim lane of sales. And so... I would, I just would encourage people to expand their horizons and look to as many sources as they possibly can to improve not just their knowledge, but their skills and most importantly, their behaviors. And I think start, the first step in emotional intelligence is self-awareness. Mm-hmm. I don't think, it, I think we, not to get socio or political here, but it feels like over time we've had less and less, we're less and less held accountable for our lack of self-awareness. And therefore we, we're not aware that we're not self-aware. <laughs> And I see people being very self-centric and very product-centric and very company-centric and very system-centric in their approaches to trying to sell anything at scale. And all of those things are designed to protect themselves and not do what's in the best interest of the customer. Right. So small groups tend to do very well in trying different things or doing some of the things that we talk about or individual. But systematically at scale, it's very difficult to create that kind of a culture. So how do we do that? Dewan, if that was up to you and you had to start with you and get back, Sean, is how do we start affecting this type of change in sales? Because here we're all sort of in violent agreement that what's most important, yet when we look at sort of the results in the, the business and the industry and they show a different path as sell buyers are still hugely frustrated with the experience we're going to sell or 75% claim they'd rather do it on their own rather than talk to a salesperson, yada, 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 yada. How do we begin to actually make change in this? I think it's a great question. A part of my knee-jerk response is, if that is the if that is the truth that seventy something percent of buyers are frustrated with the seller process, and that 
we know that human-centric selling and focusing on the buyer themselves, their problems, how big the problem is, the impact of the problem across their business. If we know that those are the better routes and those out those over time yield the best outcomes, then for some reason it would seem like at there there comes a point when those doing it the other way can't succeed in the market. And so, but I don't know if that's what's happening, right? I think over time what we do see is that uh, as buyers become frustrated and start to voice some of those frustrations, more people start to figure out like what is the alternative to this? Some of the things that have been said by Sherry, some of the things that have been said by Sean is just like, and this is not, I'm not, I'm going to go back into some of the AI stuff too, but ultimately like long-term it doesn't work. It's just like fear and guilt versus like love and grace, right? Mm -hmm. Both affect change. Both are very effective. Some in perpetuity, two of those in perpetuity, two of those very temporarily, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that as we look at sellers who desire to be in this, in their career for a long time, there's a lot of demarcation, right? That's going to take you so far and it's not going to take you further. Mm. How do I get further? That's the transition you need to make in order to actually affect that sort of change. So that's a lot to say that the way that we start to affect change is to, in some ways, we wait for the line of demarcation to occur because it will, it has to. And in other ways, we coach, we lead, we train, we lead by example, we show the results and the outcomes of the right. And those who are who want to see those sort, sorts of results will start to ask the question, how do I actually develop this empathy? How do I actually grow in my concern and curiosity and care for the business that I'm serving versus this inward flow and this inward look and selfish look at how I can get to what I need? And so we're painting this picture, and I'll throw this out to Sharon Sean as well, is, is that it has to come from the individual, right? You're painting a picture of the individual taking responsibility for changing Yet the cultures within so many sales organizations driven by activity metrics and the things that really legislate against sellers focusing on developing these types of human experiences for buying a positive buying experiences for their prospects. That's well, the, the tide is turning, right? Like you, you wrote a wonderful book, <laughs> right? <laughs> that, that speaks to some of these things. And so as the tide turns. And we start to like, what is a lot of the discussion that's right now in the interwebs and in the LinkedIn sphere on a regular basis? We see things about burnout. We see things about mental health. We think we see things about um, psychological safety. We see things about what real leadership does versus what real leadership doesn't. Like it's a big conversation and individuals inside of the organizations and inside of the machines that continue to drive that old way are waking up in droves, I believe. And as that happens, there's new tribes barking up all over the place. Sure. And I see some companies suffering because of it. And it's an economic uh, hit to organizations and cultures who maintain sort of that driving metrics. It's about this, drive the number, get the revenue at all costs. Yes, it's about the customer, but it's mostly about us. Like, that's just not, it's not, uh, I, I don't see that as um, persisting in popularity okay. for much longer. And maybe I'm an optimist. And now, a message from Closed. An often overlooked way to improve your win rate is to identify and close win-back opportunities. After conducting tens of thousands of buyer interviews, Closed has found that 10% of closed-loss deals have the potential to be won back at some point in the future. Now, identifying these win-back opportunities early and knowing when and how to follow up could be worth millions. Closed recently helped one of their customers identify and win a $500,000 win-back opportunity 
within days of it being marked as closed lost. Closed automatically reached out to perform a win-loss interview when the deal was marked closed loss in the CRM. And the buyer said, well, actually, we're still interested and we're ready to sign the contract. Closed is finding win-back deals on a daily basis for their clients. How about for you? To help you get started receiving the value of consistent, direct, candid feedback from your buyers, Closed is offering all my listeners a free gift. Just go to winlosstoolkit.com and they'll send you a bunch of valuable tools to help you get your win-loss program started. The toolkit includes a comprehensive guide to running a successful win-loss program, an ROI calculator, and they'll even perform your first win-loss interview for free to help you see the value of getting feedback directly from your buyers. So to claim your gift, visit winlosstoolkit.com. That's winlosstoolkit.com. And now a message from Alego. Are you struggling to make your sales team more efficient and improve time to productivity? With Alego's modern revenue enablement platform, marketing sales and enablement teams get on the same page for continuous improvement. So break through all the noise and deliver the buying experiences that your buyers today demand. Enable faster ramp times for your rep and more revenue for your business in less time. See how it all can work for you. Go to alego.com demo. That is alego.com slash demo. No, I mean, it's good to be an optimist. You have to be. You're in sales. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad there's some optimists out there. Otherwise, you're in your throat. Right. <laughs> so, Sherry, in your book, Heart and Sell, which I love the book very much, you know, about the human-centric approach to selling. And sort of curious, you're talking about you working with large organizations that sometimes seem like maybe suffer from the status quo, perhaps more than others. What are you seeing in your work with some of the big organizations you mentioned in terms of bringing this sort of human-first approach to selling? Look, I'm only seeing the people that want to do that because they're the ones who come to me, right? Sure. And then those sure. are the ones that I'm going to attract. I, I was thinking something very clearly, though, listening to Dewan talk. And I don't know if y'all noticed, but when Dewan started on this call with his mission, I don't know about you, but I felt something in my body. I think when there's a sense of purpose and a mission, we feel it. And I remember I was at Dreamforce maybe three or four years ago. And I met a kid, he was probably 30, named Sean. And I asked him, he was like one of the top SDRs, they all are, right? And But I asked him why he was there. And it was so interesting. He said, I really wanted to be in a nonprofit. I really wanted to change the world. I really wanted to help global warming. But then I found Salesforce. I'm like, okay. He said, do you know that Benioff is giving this much money to the homeless population? So every time I write a deal, I am helping homeless people. And I thought, that's unbelievable. So when we talk about changing and getting people to have a more consumer-centric, a more humanistic approach, as Dewan was talking, I was jotting down, maybe it's the three M's. And I was just thinking this while you were talking. Mm -hmm. I think in order to affect change, first, there's got to be a mission that is so strong at the top that it is contagious and you are going to attract those types of people and you have to hire for people that have that mission and share those values. Like, yes, the skills need to be there. That goes without saying. There's plenty of skilled people out there. But do they agree with your mission and your vision? So that's where it starts. Second is modeling. And Dewan, you said something about we need to lead by example. So the only way there's going to be change is if the leaders are modeling that behavior. 
and having success. Because as I said before, what happens in the training and coaching process will be duplicated in the sales process. It's So we have to have these strong role models. So any sellers that are listening to this, it's what Marcus Buckingham said. People don't leave companies, they leave managers. You've got to pick a great manager and a great leader. It's not, ooh, I'm working for Salesforce. It's, ooh, I'm working for Sean Shepard. He's going to teach me something. And so you've got to be really careful who you choose to be led by, because that's going to determine the human you become in the process. And then the third M, I have mission, modeling, and then mastery. And to be proficient in anything, it takes mastery, which is constant learning and development. And Carol Dweck, of course, talks about it, that you've got to have a growth mindset. And I think today more than ever, whether it's ChatGPT or whether it's learning new products, new methods, new ways of reaching people, omni-channel, we've got to be open not only to learn, but to unlearn things we thought we knew. And so I believe that those three elements, those three M's that you inspired me to think of, Dewan, is what it's going to take in order to really see change. You know, I, I just want to say this real quick. It's, I love that you went there, especially with the first M of mission, because my post on, I had a post on LinkedIn today that was just a, a flashback to when I first heard Simon Sinek start with why the golden mm-hmm. circle. And, and it was like 2009-ish when one of my colleagues said, have you ever heard the golden circle? He sent the video to me and it literally changed my life. People don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. And that alignment with mission from the top, like you said, you're going to see some of the successes of those who are empathetic leaders at the top trickle down through the organization. And hopefully that's going to draw those people who, who, who believe the same, right? Belief statements are super powerful in life, but especially in sales, as we think about alignment with the, with our buyers. Go ahead, Cherry. No, I was just going to say, and I think especially the higher up you go, when you're talking to the C-suite, they've heard every product pitch under the sun and they all start sounding the same, right? It's very hard to differentiate at some point. And I, I just find that, that the higher up you go, the more that you talk about the why your company does what they do or why we do what we do, that's where that true connection happens at a very Absolutely. deep level. Absolutely. All right, Sean. Um, well, I think, how do you create a change around what we talked about? I think it all starts where most of these things starts. It starts with leadership, whether that's in the classroom from a very young age, all the way through you matriculate through your education and you're conditioned by society in certain ways around certain social norms and fixed ideas that have been around forever, right? I still think in the sales world, I still think the world is flat in some ways. So there's that. I also think it will happen that exists with sales leadership itself. Uh, and, and to be fair, I think a lot of what drives these behaviors in sales talk, what we talk about is within the context of technology sales. Because there's this promise of scale, once again, that drives the behaviors of an organization and everyone in it. I have a lot of very good friends with very successful sales, very successful salespeople or businesses that are very relationship and empathy oriented that are not technology related. Mm -hmm. I I had a very good friend who has the largest commercial drywall construction company in the West Coast. He's been monstrously successful. And you know what his salespeople do all day? Take the guys out, play golf, go to events, entertain, just talk. They know each other's families and they have for 30 years. They're best friends. And it's not a good old boy network per se, but that's the nature of the industry they're in. Physical products and services 
say, on, pro- on a project basis that, that's quite large, is a very different business model than selling SaaS. And they recognize that it's all about the relationship. And you do everything you can to support and foster those relationships. And usually the last thing you're talking about is business, not the first. How's the family? How are you liking kids? What's going on? Johnny got the home run on Saturday or we're vacationing together. Very common in those kinds of worlds. But I think that's specific to, to the kind of business model, right? And the product and market dynamic that exists. In technology, we are, a, a lot of salespeople are viewed and, and relegated to being hamsters on a wheel. It's a factory mindset, just like the school systems are. The reason we use school bells and mimic factory whistles bells. And all of that needs to be turned on its head and we thought, this is going to change. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you said what you said because I've had numerous conversations with uh, a good friend of mine, Jeff Bajoric. Some of you may know. Sure. About yeah, just on about, the show. Yeah, about this very thing where we talk. He's like, Dewan, like, of all the all salespeople in, in the United States, do you know how small a percentage is SaaS? Right? There, <laughs> it just so happens that for me, anyway, LinkedIn has sort of encased me in a world that's surrounded by methodology, philosophy, structure, frameworks, processes that are all about, originated with, and emanating from SaaS and tech. But that's not the majority of the sales world. No. And like you said, I have a, a good friend who's like doing extraordinarily well in an insurance, selling insurance, life insurance, which is again, a very relational business. And so in some ways it's like, I've seen organizations who are in what we would call legacy industries, whether that be manufacturing, whether that be in some cases banking, whether that be insurance, start to adopt certain philosophies and, and processes from the tech world to, to a great success in terms of efficiency function, and, and, and productivity within their business. What, I, what you're saying, Sean, and I 100% agree with is that potentially the SaaS world might do uh, do itself a favor and the tech world might do itself a favor by reaching back and borrowing something from that side as well. It's not just, hey, we want to give you something to help you because we have it and you don't. It's like, hey, you also have some things that we need inside of our organizations, inside of the thing that we do. And it's that relationship, it's that empathy, it's that building, it's that business, not first, but last, right? It's family. It's all of the things that make us human doing that together in on the way to business. And that's something that I think we could all use more of in, in tech. Well, Sean, I've got a question for you. I, I think you, you and I may have touched on this once or twice in the past, but is to a point Duan was just making, we're all making about sort of behavior, what happens within tech and SaaS in particular. But when you look at that business model and when you look at the sales model, not the business model, when you look at the sales model and you look at the results that are generated, sure, there's some companies have succeeded wildly using that model. It's still this very tiny fraction of those companies that have really succeeded. Can we really say that model has been a success? Why is it? That, that's what I'm always mystified. That it seems so immune to change because you look at the numbers, you look at data on win rates and data, quota achievement and so on. It's like, yeah, gee, this isn't working at all. Well, it depends how you define success. And I don't want this to sound cynical, but again, if you take a step back, the bankers were successful. The founders in a small number of cases, right? Uh Right. Well, that's always the, you're going to have this, you're going to have your general success curve in any industry, right? Only a certain number are going to be wildly successful. And then there's your standard 
distribution. But is it successful enough for the people that are in control is really the question. Is it driving the outcomes they want? And again, a lot of the people that are in control have never been in that seat, right? So they don't know what they don't know about what great looks like within, say, the various stages of a funnel, right? Right. Conversion rates, et cetera. You and I have talked about this a lot in the past, right? What are the key things that could change win rates? You all know, but we, I think you and I have always agreed that qualification is in the top of the funnel qualification has a greater impact on the bottom of the funnel than anything else. And are you qualifying people properly? And are you maintaining the proper hygiene? And are you spending your limited time, money, and resources focused on the right, in the right areas with the right people on the right things at the right stages? And do you understand what those are? And are you willing to, to let go if it's not the right thing, right? Whether that's at the individual level or you're teaching that and creating operational efficiencies for the right disciplines and behaviors of the individual salespeople on the, in the organization. So no, of course, they, they could be a lot better. And there's a lot of reasons why, right? And I think we touched on a ton of them here today. And that's why you see such a broad distribution between the top individual sellers and everybody else in the team, just like you see a broad distribution between the most successful companies and everybody else. It's all tied to whether or not people are willing to grow and learn on a continuous basis, right? Yeah. Mindset, skills, that mastery, all the things we've been talking about there. Well, what I find interesting, to your point specifically, I've interviewed a ton of top, really top SaaS salespeople on the show. And what's interesting is they sell typically outside the system. Yes, like, they do. They're mavericks. <laughs> right. And so the managers aren't looking at that and saying, what they look at is say, well, listen to this person's phone calls and look at the the listen to the way they're you know phrasing the sentence and so on talk like that that's missing the points that's just a small fraction of who they are and what they do it's these other things it's empathy the way they connect the ins- insightful questions they ask the curiosity relentless curiosity and it's like well let's map that part and it's tangibles right like when they why did why does the nfl get the quarterback saying wrong all the time because all, all they the were yes. physical measurables right it's yeah, the how big the hand is things you can't measure right i i just i love this conversation because when we go into an organization and train, we're usually training for the rest, not the best, because the best is out of their minds, right? Like they're enigmas. And the problem is management will either try to scale them or stop, them, right? Like, Ooh. oh, let's scale Jake. And like Jake does everything wrong. Jake does everything <laughs> the opposite of what I tell him to do. Like he doesn't do a discovery. He doesn't make it about them. Like Jake just like I have seen more Jake (laughs) and and they just have the it factor. And I always say to leadership, leave Jake alone as long as he's ethical, moral, but don't try to scale him and certainly don't stop him. And don't have your other sellers listen in on his calls because not unless you can it is not. Crisper, not unless you can stick him at a CRISPR machine and oh, genetically. Now we're using tech. No, 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 yeah, no, now no, we're no. using No, because I'm yeah. like I'm half joking, but I'm dead serious. It's the yeah. DNA, right? Yes. There's a DNA of people. So I'm the sale, I'm the startup DNA person, right? I love zero to one. And I've always been great at that. I start something, I build it to a place to where it's scaled, and then I get out because now it gets boring. That's who I am. It took me a long time to learn that. And that's what I, that's the space I like to play in. So mm-hmm. we, I call it a startup DNA. I believe that there is a sales DNA. There's an accounting DNA. There's a doctor DNA. There are DNAs that make these people who they are that we haven't figured, quite figured out how to capture and measure yet and replicate using traditional methods. 
And now, a word from Cognizant. Picture this. Your revenue team armed with accurate B2B contact data that leaves missed opportunities and unreachable prospects in the past. Look no further than Cognizant, the B2B contact data provider that stands out with unwavering focus on data quality and coverage. Cognizant's U.S. data set alone offers two times more cell phone numbers than any other provider on the market. And it gets even better. Seven million human-verified cell phone numbers backed by a 98% accuracy rate deliver precision like you've never seen before. And if international business growth is on the horizon, Cognizant offers the most complete GDPR-compliant data in Europe, making your expansion dreams more attainable than ever. Customers like Drift have already experienced the power of Cognizant. In just 30 days, they proved ROI and now book 70% of their outbound meetings using Cognizant's cell phone data. But don't take our word for it. Get a free data sample and test the quality for yourself. Head over to Cognizant.com slash data sample to get your free data sample today. That's Cognizant.com slash data sample. Yeah, or to your point is how do we identify people with those, that potential, if you will, right? Because somebody brought up before, I forget which one of you, but it's, for me, success in sales really boils down to the situation you're in. Yeah, sure, you're talking about the M for manager, right? Putting, finding the right manager that you're going to work for is, yeah, you see this all the time in LinkedIn or other places, sellers complaining that not able to perform to their potential, managers holding them back, blah, 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 blah. It's like, well, go find another manager. Go put yourself in a different situation because your success Correct. based on exactly. who you are is going to be so situational. Is you may work for a perfectly good manager, it's just not the right situation. Go find the right situation. Absolutely. Most people don't have the courage to do that, though. Right? They just don't. Yeah. Courage with a small C, but yeah, I, yeah, that was sort of me as I, I looked for bosses that scared me in a good right. way, right? One that I thought was going to really challenge me intellectually, get me out of my comfort zone and in ways that I hadn't really thought of before. And I wanted to take on that challenge. But you're an enigma, Andy. You're that enigma. You're that one we can't scale, we can't define. That's why you're where you are, right? And the anomaly. Yeah, that's right. I always thought that was (laughs) sort of the glaring fault. And I've had this conversation with Brett Adamson in the the challenger sale is that we'd go into companies and say, we want to scale challenger. We want to hire a bunch of challengers. Like, well, we can train people to ask these types of questions. That's not true challenger, though. The challengers are these people we're describing. It's that they sort of have that it factor. They have this ability to insert themselves in those curiosities, driving curiosities, sort of know more and want to know more. You, you can't really train that or can you? The challenge, the piece of challenge that I think is that can be applied across personality types, DNA types is just is the core of it, right? What is it? Teach, tailor and take control. The teach and tailor part, I would say, hey, teach and tailor as you, Sherry, teach and tailor as you, Sean. Teach and Taylor, as you, Andy, I think those are right. I think those are right frameworks to think about what some of the valuable, some of the value you can bring to a, a sales uh, process. But I don't think that, I don't think that is a thing to be scaled in and of itself as the book lays it out. I think it's descriptive, not prescriptive. But I think as a framework that can be scaled and at least taught and how do you teach to differentiate in the context of a sales flow? How do you tailor what you've heard and what you've, what you know, and synthesize that in such a way that you bring value to the buyer? Like, how do you do it? Right. The point is not like 
do it like this. It's like, no, like you are a person with value. You have extraordinary intellect. You have a thought process that we need to learn from and we need to sort of learn, teach, learn in this context of this team. How do you do your tailoring? How do you do your tailoring? How do you do your tailoring? Those are the parts of the challenge of sale that I think should be, can be foundational and like a real springboard into it being a success inside of organizations spread across. But like, if you take the challenger, the book itself, and you try to make people uh, sort of acquiesce to it wholesale, then I think that's where it might break down. Right. And you were describing a scenario where it really requires managers that can help coach people to be able to bring this out as opposed to, yeah, making it part of a cookie cutter training right. program and say, now everybody's a challenger. Right. Yeah. Challenger sherified. Challenger shonified. <laughs> Well, I think right. it's important. <laughs> Look, processes and frameworks and even mental models are really important. Like, right. you still have to have the emotional intelligence and you should still allow your own personality and style to come through and make it your own, just like anything. At the end, we're talking about the individual seller, right? Select yeah, your that- approach. I've always, Andy's heard me say this many times. I've probably read every sales book under the sun instead of every methodology there is. And I think they all have great things. And I'm not going to say one's better than another. You as an organization or person want to adopt this because you feel like you understand it. It's going to make you better. Great. Okay. But that's just the process, right? How you apply the process that creates a method that's repeatable and predictable and scalable for you. That really is what really matters. And my whole thing is just to open up your mind and get outside of the well and, and, and explore the ocean and bring some of that back to the frogs in the well and learn how to use those things to apply cross-functionally to your skill set. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, what's your job? To me, a, job, a salesperson's job is to help other people get what they want. Yep. Right? And if you can help them get what they want and they're successful in that, then you are the byproduct of that success. That therein yep. is your success. So the way that Carrie's friend, Sean at 30, connected his deal writing to helping homeless people. I connect everything I do, and I've always taught my people to connect it to the success of others. Our mm-hmm. job, selling is helping. Your job is to help other people get what they want, and you should feel good about it. And if you can do that with integrity and, 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 and ethics, you can sleep at night. You've been successful. Zig Ziglar, right? Yeah. If you help enough mm-hmm. other people get what they want in life, you'll get what you want out of life. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, but this is not the culture that exists. I want to, we sort of beat this up a little bit, but one story I always, <laughs> I think illustrates the challenge is my previous podcast had Don Dieter Schmelz, who runs the sales program at Kansas State University, one of the first undergraduate selling programs, and very interesting conversation with Don. And she was talking about when she teaches her first introduction to professional selling class. This is 18 and 19 year olds, very little exposure, professional sales, and they do role plays. She said to a person, they all default to being super salesy. Because that's how they've been conditioned. But but Andy, at least just getting back to the framework conversation, frameworks are so important because frameworks help us to be authentic and to use our own voice. But you're mentioning at least she's doing the role play. The yeah. reason that these frameworks don't work sometimes is because people train the way they train instead of training the way people learn. And right. at the end of the day, mm-hmm. people learn through doing. They learn through repetition. They learn through practice. They actually learn through retrieval. Learning yeah. takes struggle. And a lot of managers don't let their people struggle to find the answers on their own, but they've got to take these frameworks 
and then not only see how they apply to sales situations, but if it's a good framework, like challenge your customer, I think is even better than challenge yourself. I agree, 100%. 100%. And and a lot of those frameworks, like you got to get agreement on the problem before you offer the solution. Like that to me was the biggest aha on the planet. Like you can apply that to your marriage. It's no, just we're probably, like right? right? Oh, yeah. I no, apply I, it all the time. I don't tell him what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, I'm on the other side of that curve. So I got a group of men here. I got to tell you. Yeah. But I, yeah, to your point though, Sherry and Sean is, yeah, I wrote in my book, Sell Without Selling Out, that our job as a seller is to listen to the customer, to understand the things that are most important to them, and then help them get that. What's your job as a spouse? Well, to listen to your partner, to understand things that are most important to them, help them get that. As a colleague, how do you help support a colleague? You listen to the things that are most important to them and help them get that as you are what's in, the one in word life. This, what's the one word to describe all three of those examples? Relationship. Help. Yeah, relationships yeah. help. Relationships. But yeah. it, I mean, just the dynamic is relationship, whether it's husband, wife, colleague, yep. to colleague, yep. uh, vendor, to, part, vendor, partner, to customer, right? It's all about establishing a relationship or maintaining that relationship. And these are the tactics by which you can maintain Bill, I think the test of the rubber meeting the road is when that is the methodology. That is the way that the paradigm and the framework. And then what happens when I think that the test is what happens in the organization when the thing that person wanted or the thing that organization wanted wasn't your thing. And how many times does that have to happen? And then how helpful are you beyond that? And then how genuine was that that disposition of help to begin with? And right, right. So like, how do we stretch that from like a point in time to actually, this is actually what I want for the person on the other side of the table. Not, this is something that I want to feign that I want in order to progress this relationship to the point of a sale. So it's like, it's philosophically, like it makes perfect sense at the end of the day. Like, is it real is the question that I would ask in some cases. Absolutely. All right. Unfortunately, we're sort of running out of time, but that was a good answer to, to end on. Appreciate everybody stopping by, helping out with this today. If you could just let us know quickly, each of you, how they can get hold of you. If people are interested in learning more about you, Sherry, let's start with you. I put out free videos every single day on LinkedIn. So connect with me on LinkedIn, watch our videos, and or you can go to our website, sherrylevitin.com. Perfect. Sean? I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. Connect with me there. Reference. You saw the podcast. Be happy to connect. Sean, Dewan, excuse me. Yeah, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, of course. MeritAmerica.org is the name of our organization. If you are at all interested or passionate in a third path for folks that allow for fast and flexible programs that work for people who work to get into tech out of low-wage work, please come check out the site. Perfect. All right. Thank you, everyone. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode of the WinRate Podcast. First of all, thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guests, Sean Shepard, Dewan Brown, and Sherry Levitin for sharing their wisdom with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, The WinRate Podcast with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And also, before you go, don't forget, subscribe to my newsletter, WinRate Wednesday. Every Wednesday, you get one actionable, or at least one actionable, tip to help you increase your win rates delivered right to your inbox, you can subscribe at my website, andyball.com or at LinkedIn. So again, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.